Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. For now, we are continuing along. We're in Acts chapter 17. We are somewhere around the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. And if you remember back to last week, Paul had been both in Thessalonica and in the town of Berea. And Scripture made a comparison for us last week between the people of these two towns, or at least the people in the synagogues of these two towns, calling the Bereans a more noble-minded people. And the reason they were more noble-minded was because they studied hard to confirm the things that Paul had been teaching them. They didn't take it at face value. They went home, they studied hard to make sure. They were looking at the scriptures. This guy really shooting us straight. Beyond that, they then, once they realized that that the word of God was being revealed to them and, and there was something that needed to change in their life, they took action and they acted upon the Word of God. So number one, they studied the Word of God. Second, they they brought their lives in line with the Word of God and and lived it out, which is what James was talking about in James 1.22, and we mentioned it last week. Prove yourselves doers of the Word, not merely hearers of the Word who delude themselves. So the Bereans were those doers of the Word. On the other hand, the Thessalonians rejected the Word of truth, not because it was not truth, but because of their own desires, their own biases, and their own agendas. And these Thessalonican guys were so aggro that not only did they start a riot in their own town of Thessalonica over Paul being there preaching the gospel, they heard that he had gone to Berea, and they now go all the way to Berea, 100 miles, they march over there to cause trouble for him in that town. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning, and we're going to pray as we get into the Word. Lord, we ask that as we open your holy word, you would speak to us. Lord, I believe that what you're going to say this morning from your word, the subject that we're studying within your word, it speaks to every one of our lives. Every one of us can can relate to things in our lives that compete for our attention over you, idols that we set up in our lives. And so we ask, Lord, that as we see your word, that we would be the Bereans. We would study it hard and then bring our lives in line with it. Not the Thessalonians, rejecting it for our own agenda. Lord, would you speak to us now in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. We're going to pick up in verse 13. And it says there, But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. So they stayed in Berea, verse 15. And now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So Paul leaves Silas and Timothy to care for this newborn baby church in Berea, right? They've just planted this church. There's just some brand new believers there until these Thessalonians come and start trouble. Paul leaves so that he's not a distraction and he leaves his boys behind to follow up with the church and make sure they're okay. 
Paul then goes to Athens, and he's wandering around the city of Athens by himself. The people that brought him there have now returned back to Berea, and he's there in Athens by himself. And that's where we pick up verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, notice what it says. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing a city full of idols. Now, there's three things we're going to draw out of here, and you can see the title of our message this morning is A Biblical Heart in a World of Idols, and three things that that we're going to draw out. Number one is Paul saw. He saw Athens clearly. He was observing a city that was full of idols, and Athens, if you don't know, was the glory of ancient Greece. It was a lavish, lavish city incredible buildings to this day that stand, many of them are in ruins, but incredible buildings there. And it was the center of Greek culture. And being the center of Greek culture, it was also the center of pagan Greek god worship. And so there were temples and shrines and statues and idols all over Athens, everywhere to these Greek gods. One writer that was visiting Athens at this time, around this time, said that it's easier to find a God in Athens than it is to find a person in Athens because of how many temples and shrines and statues and altars that were set up around the city. And so when it says that Paul was observing a city full of idols, that's what it meant. That that Greek word there for full, it means under or swamped in. It's a city completely swamped in idols, wholly given over to idolatry. Now, how that might relate to us today. If you don't know, and it it appears a little different than ancient Greece, but we live in a culture full of idols. Idolatry is rampant in America, wholly given over to idolatry. Now, we'll we'll start with this. The idea that everybody worships something. Everybody worships something. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 speaks to this fact that God has planted eternity in the human hearts. That, That God has done this thing for us. He has designed us. He created us with this longing for something bigger, something more, something deeper than what we are. There's something within us that God gave us that unless it is filled rightly and accurately, it leaves us hollow. It leaves this sense of longing for something greater, right? And there's only one thing that fills that void completely and rightly, and that is God himself, a relationship with God himself. That's what we were designed for, a relationship with God. And so God has put this sense of more in our hearts that we would be longing for him, that we would be looking for him, that we would ultimately come to a relationship with him. There is a sense in which we are wired for worship. We were created for worship. But humanity, who has not found that ultimate fulfillment in Christ, looks to other things for fulfillment, looks to lesser things to try to fulfill that void, that that longing and that hollowness 
in his heart. And man at that time creates for himself idols, which idolatry is misplaced worship. That's what idolatry is. We're all designed for worship. We all worship something, but it's misplaced worship. And we live in a culture of misplaced worship where our culture is largely trying to find meaning and purpose and joy and fulfillment in lesser things. And an idol, by its definition, is anything that we would place above God. Anything that we would hold in importance above Him. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In essence, he's saying you love Him in first position with all your everything. And anything that competes then in our lives for that number one position always runs the danger of becoming an idol in our lives. And for different people, it's different things. But it's easy to look around our culture and see that it's there, is it not? Some people have money as their idol. That's the number one thing in their life, the pursuit of money. Others, it's success or their business, and they pour everything they have into that business, and that holds number one priority in their life. For some people, it's fun, right? It's the party life. So that's number one in their life, just pursuing fun or power. Some people, it's an actual person, maybe a spouse or a child, and and that person is their whole world, their whole identity, and that is number one in their life. For others, it's sex or knowledge or beauty or popularity or acceptance or a sport that they play. That that sport is their identity. They live for it. That's their number one thing in their life. The thing that we center our life on that becomes our God. The thing that captivates, most captivate our attention, our time, our resources, our efforts, our thoughts, that thing is what we worship. The problem with that is that Scripture tells us that all things were made by Jesus and for Jesus. And while we were created to worship There's only one who is actually worthy of worship. And that's why nothing else in this whole world ever fulfills completely that void. Have you noticed that? That nothing else in the whole world will ever be able to fill that longing in the human heart, no matter what it is, no matter how much money you have. Wasn't it J.D. Rockefeller was asked, how much money do you need? And he said, just a little bit more, when he was the most wealthy man in the world. Elvis Presley, at the height of his um, fame and popularity, asked to define himself in one term, said he was lonely. It doesn't matter how much of it you get. There's something within us that that if, if it's not Jesus fulfilling that void, there's still a hole there because everything else will eventually fail you. Everything else will eventually disappoint you. The people that you hold up in your life, they'll eventually let you down. The money that you so long to get, you'll die one day and you can't take it with you. That sport that you invested your whole life in, one day you're just going to be too old and tired to play the thing anymore. You got to retire. Everything else will eventually fail you. But, but, when we live our lives with Jesus at the center, 
when, when we place him on that number one position, then we're doing what we were created for. And then that ultimate purpose and meaning and fulfillment is there. But, but when our ultimate meaning, purpose, and fulfillment is in Christ, and we're no longer dependent on other things, that whole long list that we read, we're no longer dependent on those things for our fulfillment or our identity. A funny thing happens in our lives. We're then freed up to enjoy those things more. You see, when Jesus is number one, when we're not dependent on that sport or that money or that person or our looks or our popularity, when we're not dependent on that, when that doesn't define us, when that thing doesn't make or break us, we're set free to enjoy all those things rightly. If Jesus reigns supreme in your life, all these other things fall into their right proper place and we enjoy them the way we were meant. So number one is Paul walks into Athens and he sees things clearly. He saw the city. Number two is this. He felt deeply. Look at verse 16 again. When Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked. Notice that. His spirit being provoked. Uh, Another translation says deeply troubled or greatly distressed. Another translation says as he's observing this city full of idols. He's deeply distressed. He's provoked. The the Greek word there for provoked, it's kind of a combination of these different emotions. It's kind of a combination of the word they use for, for spurring a horse. So he's spurred, yet it's also a combination of this great concern for the lost souls of this city. Yet at the same time, it's combined with this righteous anger over idolatry and combined at the same time with a jealousy for the glory of God. Here's a people who are designed for worship and they're settling on lesser gods, gods that aren't even really gods. And they're depriving the true and living God of the worship that he is due. And so he's jealous for the glory of God. Now, having already established that we live today here in America and around us in a culture of great idolatry, then we need to ask ourselves three questions. Number one, are we grieved? As Paul was walking through Athens, as we walk through our Athens every day, are we grieved by the culture of idolatry around us? Does it bother us when we see it? Does it get under our skin? Does it break our heart? Now, we might easily say yes, but I would suggest to you, if the answer is yes, the first place that we would see this is in our prayer life, that we would begin to cry out for God. Lord, help break this idolatry. All of these things that are worshiped when you are not. So number one is, are we grieved? Number two have we become desensitized to it? The idolatry of our culture. Are you and I walking around hearing these things, seeing these things in movies and television and all these things and numb to them? They just don't bother us anymore. Or number three, and even worse, are we a part of them? Are there things in our lives that have captivated our time, and our attention, and our resources, and our thoughts, and our efforts that we have allowed to gain a position 
above Christ in our life? Are we grieved by the idols? Are we just desensitized to them? Or do we actually have them? Number one was Paul saw clearly. Number two was Paul felt deeply. Number three is Paul took action. Look at verse 17. So, because he saw this idol worship all over Athens, verse 17, so he was reasoning in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the market, notice what it says, in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present, and also with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they were conversing with him. Stop there for just a second. So, Paul's basically going around Athens talking to anybody that'll talk to him, sharing Jesus with anybody that'll take the time to give him the time to talk to him. It mentions three groups here. One is the synagogue, the the Jews of the synagogue, as as well as the God-fearers, that is the Gentiles that believe in the Hebrew God. Then he speaks of the Agora, that's the marketplace. In Athens, it was this large city center. And it says every day, Paul was going over there talking to anybody that would talk to him, anybody who happened to be present. And then there was a third group, these philosophers, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers. These were the big brains of Athens, and we're going to talk about them in a minute. But Paul was pretty much just talking to anybody that would listen to him. And I think it brings up a good point And it brings up a common deficiency within the church today. Paul, seeing what's going on, went out and he engaged the culture. He went out and he met them wherever they were at, whether they were in the synagogue, in the marketplace, or with the the philosophers of the day. Wasn't a problem for him. He went out and met and engaged them in culture. He didn't wait for them to come to him. He didn't wait for them to hear, oh, wait, the great apostle Paul's in town. He'll just sit over there and wait for everybody that wants to talk to him to come over and talk to him. He doesn't do that. He goes to them. And I think in the church today, it seems to me, and not just here speaking, but in the church in general in America, the strategy to fulfill the great commission has become, let's open the doors and wait for people to come in. But that seems like pretty much what most churches do. What we're going to do is we'll have a church in the community. We'll open up the doors, open up the windows. We'll play our, our worship music loud, and we'll wait for everybody to come in. And it appears to me that the extent of most people's attempt to fulfill the Great Commission is to merely invite people to church. They don't tell them the gospel. They don't share the gospel. But, but just come to church with me. And there's nothing wrong with inviting somebody to church. But Jesus told us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And that's what Paul's doing. Because the reality is, there's a whole lot of people out there who have no plans to walk through these church doors. You remember some years ago, about 10 years ago, there was kind of this new movement in the church. It was called the emergent church or the emerging church. It never gained a whole lot of traction. There's still a little bit of a remnant of it today. But back then, it was kind of a a big startup thing, the emergent church or the emerging church. And and, um, it kind of struggled, and it never really kind of amounted to much. And largely, it it had some problems. It was kind of ambiguous. Um, It was undefined. So people didn't really know a whole lot about what it was. That left it open to some 
weird ideas and doctrines, and so it, it kind of struggled along those lines. And it ultimately ended up kind of soft-pedaling the gospel because they were kind of, they would use terminology like, we're not going to have a sermon, we're just going to have a conversation with you. Things like that. And it had a whole lot of problems to it. But for all of its faults, its original motivation was good and noble. Basically where it came from was this. A lot of people, primarily younger people, had become disillusioned with kind of the old, stifled, ineffective church culture that they were experiencing when they went to church. And they recognized that the churches that they went to on a Sunday morning weren't reaching the cultures that they were living in on Monday morning. And so their idea was the church needs to emerge. That's why it's called the emerging church or the emergent church. The church needs to get out to stop being fortified and entrenched in in the four walls of a church building and go out and engage culture. And so for all of its faults, it came from a felt need of this need of the church needing to emerge. And I agree with them on that one thing, that the church does need to emerge. We need to be like Paul. We need to get up and go out these doors and engage culture. It's the idea that we've talked about here at the mission from the very, very beginning. Some seven years ago, we started talking about the fact that we need to see ourselves rightly, that we are the church gathered for certain purposes on a Sunday morning or a home group or a Bible study where the church gathered. But after that, we don't cease to be the church. We then need to also be the church scattered. Equally important as being the church gathered, we also need to be the church scattered so that when we walk out of these doors and we go out into our world, into our workplaces and the places that we go, we're engaging the cultures that we live in. I mean, isn't that what Jesus meant when he said, you're the light of the world, a city set on a hill? Wasn't that what he was pointing to? That people ought to be able to look at your life out of culture and see this light? He says, nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. They put it up on the lampstand so that the whole house can see. And that's why he said, therefore, let your light shine before men in such a way that they'll see your good deeds and turn to your Father who is in heaven. And so that's what Paul is doing. Now, one of the groups that it speaks of is that Paul went out and engaged in culture is these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And we have to remind ourselves that Athens was known for high culture. Athens was known for its architecture, for its literature, for its art, for its amazing sculpting and all of these things. Anything high culture, Athens was the center of that world. And it had a reputation for being the intellectual center of the world. It had a rich philosophical tradition. Socrates was was from there. Plato was from Athens. Aristotle wasn't from Athens, but he moved to Athens to be in the center of the intellectual world. It was known for its deep thinkers. Now, that's the background as we continue on in verse 18. These philosophers in this deep, rich history of philosophy. And it says also, some of the Epicurean, verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with Paul, and some were saying, What would this idle babbler wish to say? They weren't getting it. And others said, he seems to be the proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus 
and the resurrection. We're going to come back to that in a couple of weeks. Verse 19, and they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, which was up atop Mars Hill, the Areopagus. And they said, may we know what this new teaching is, which you're proclaiming. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Verse 21, now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing some new thing. They'd sit around all day, these philosophers, and talk about the meaning of life, and they always wanted to hear some new thing, which is a little bit interesting, just on a quick side note, that they've had this tradition for some 400 years from Socrates on of looking for a new thing, right? Philosophy didn't answer the questions of life that they wanted for hundreds of years, the deepest of thinkers, and here comes Paul. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus, and look what he says. Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. You see, he's looking around at a town swamped with idols. But I want you to notice something here. Religion is not the same as godliness. Religion is not the same as knowing the creator God of this universe. And this is what sets Jesus apart from all the others. Because religion is always man's attempt to reach God. That's what religion is. It's, it's man's, he's not speaking of religion here in a favorable light. He's speaking of it in a negative light. Because religion is always man's attempt to work hard enough, to try to be good enough, to do enough religious stuff, build enough temples, jump through enough hoops, build enough shrines, whatever it is, in an effort to reach God, to appease God, to try to make yourself worthy before God. That's what religion is. Christianity, on the other hand, is the opposite of that. Christianity says that we're a sinful people separated from a holy God by our sin, and there's nothing we can do to work hard enough. There's no way that we can be good enough. We can't do enough religious stuff to make ourselves worthy before God. And so we don't strive to try to grope our way to God, to, to work our way to God. Instead, what happened was that God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived a sinless life. He hung on a cross bearing all of our sin upon himself. He died a criminal's death in our place. He rose from the grave to prove that he and he alone can defeat death. And now he offers eternal life to all that will come to him. And through his sacrifice, he has removed that barrier of sin that kept us from a relationship with God. Religion is all about what you can do to try to get to God. Christianity is all about what Jesus has already done through the cross and resurrection to offer us relationship with God. There's a difference, isn't there? Verse 22, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, I proclaim to you. Paul's saying to these guys, he's like, listen guys, you guys are are so religious 
that you have swamped this city in idols. You have built temples to every God that you can think of. And when you ran out of the gods to think of, you built one to an unknown God just in case there's an unknown God that you don't know about. And Paul goes, I'm going to tell you about that God. He's saying there is. There's an unknown God to you guys. You don't know this one, and I'm going to tell you about him. And then from there, and you got to picture this. Paul is, you can go online and Google Mars Hill or Areopagus, and you'll see it's this massive kind of rock structure. And he's up on top of this thing. And Athens is below him with all of its temples and all of its statues and all of its pagan idol worship. And listen to what Paul says next. Verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. They can see thousands of temples from where they are. He's saying, my God, he ain't living down there in those temples. He's not down there. You didn't build him a house. Follow along with what Paul's saying here. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gave to all people life and breath and all things. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek for God if perhaps might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own prophets, it's inter- or some of your own poets. It's interesting that Paul knows their poetry. He's that studied up on them. He can relate to them. He says, I know some of your own poets have even said that we are offspring of God, or, or some translations say children of God there. Now, if your translation says children of God or offspring of God, we need to be careful here. Because it's not referring to the redemptive relationship of becoming born again. Remember, these are pagan guys writing poetry. When they say children of God, they're not talking about being born again, as Jesus said, but to all who believe in him and accept him, he has given the right to become children of God. When you're born again, you become children of God, adopted by God. He's talking about here that we're created by God. That's all he's saying. Their, pro, their poets spoke that we are a creation of God, and the emphasis here is on him as creator. Now, follow what he says in verse 29. Being then the offspring or the, the children or the creation of God, being the creation of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature or we ought not to think of God as gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Do you see what Paul's saying here? Paul's making the point that it doesn't make any sense to understand ourselves as created. It doesn't make any sense to understand ourselves as living, moving, thinking, created beings, and yet think of our gods as gold and silver and stone carved in statues by the hands of man. He says it doesn't make any sense. It's insanity to think that we can make our own God. It, 
I was going to put it in here, and I don't have time to go there, but your homework, you, you can go to Isaiah chapter 44, and there's a, a funny little thing that God does in there where he's talking about people making idols and how crazy it is. He says, I'm the only God. I'm the only rock because I can prophesy the future and bring it to pass. And then he says, you knuckleheads go out and cut down a tree. You use half of the tree to light a fire to bake your bread, and then the other half you carve into an idol, bow down and say, save me. You're a bunch of knuckleheads and you're crazy. That's my translation, not the actual biblical translation. He doesn't say knuckleheads and crazy in the original language. So in contrast, notice what Paul is doing. He's saying, my God's bigger than all this foolishness down here. He's saying, my God lives and he creates and he gives life. And then he says the right response to this is turn away from your dead idol worship and all these silly things that you've created and all the silly pursuits of this world and turn to the living God who created you. That's what he says in verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men uh, that all people everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, I plan to come back to this text. There's so much in there that we can't, don't have time for it this morning, but I want to finish with this. I want to finish with looking at the overall message that Paul is bringing to these big philosophers atop Mars Hill as they're looking out across all of this dead idolatry. I want us to, if we don't get anything else, to get the vibe of what Paul is saying, the overall pitch that he's making to them. If we were to go back and take the time, and I wish we had it, to go back and pick through all of what Paul said in his speech to these guys, here's what we would come up with in a condensed version. Paul is saying, my God is bigger than your God. My God doesn't live in these little temples made by man. My God doesn't need anything from man. My God created the world and all things in it. My God gave life and breath. He made every person. My God sits sovereign over every nation. We only live, we only exist because he created. He said, my God rose from the dead and he transforms lives with resurrection power. And he's saying to them, while you have built all of these temples and you have raised up all of these gods for yourself, my God is bigger and you don't get it. He's on a whole nother level than what you think of when you think of a God. You see what Paul's doing there? He's exalting the true and living God in their presence. And this is important, lest the people of Athens think that Paul is just speaking about another God that they can just simply add to all the rest of the gods that they've got there in Athens. He needs to say this so that they don't come up to him and say, hey, Paul, that was a wonderful little speech about your little God that you got there, and we're we're super happy to have more gods in our town of Athens, and we've got a plot of land over here. If you'd like to build a temple to your God, he can be included with all the rest of our gods. No, what Paul is doing is he's setting Jesus apart and above everything else that the world is idolizing. Now, we need to take a lesson from that. When we talk about our God, don't undersell your God. We don't want people to think that he is anything less than everything scripture says he is. 
When we speak of God, we don't want to speak of Him in a way that will allow people to assume that He can just be added into the rest of the gods in your life. We want to speak about God in a way that gives people a sense of the vastness and the power and the majesty of the true and living God and the transforming power of this true and living God. Amen? Listen, if you're talking to somebody and they say, yeah, yeah, man, I'm, I'm just like you. I believe, you know, in a higher power kind of a thing. Next, you stop them and say, no, I need to clarify for you. I don't merely believe in a higher power or a greater power. I believe in the ultimate power that made everything. That's what Paul was doing, isn't it? Who holds everything in his hands. The only reason that you and I are breathing right now is because he allows it. That's what you tell them. If they come to you and they say, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a Christian too, you know, just like you, because, you know, I've gone to church before and hey, I'll show up over there every once in a while on Christmas, maybe an Easter on occasion. I know, I kind of like believe some stuff and, I, you know, I know the story about Peter walking on the water. Stop him. Stop him right there. So, no, 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 you don't understand. The Jesus that I'm talking about is not just knowing a little bit about him. He will so captivate your heart with his love that when he comes into your life and changes you, it'll transform you forever and you'll never want to go back. You'll never be the same again. That's the Jesus that I'm talking about when I'm talking to you about Jesus. You see the difference in what Paul's doing. It's not just like, oh, you got some gods over here. Cool, we got some gods over here. Let me tell you about my God. Kind of. No, no, he's saying, let me tell you about the ultimate God. Somebody comes in and they say, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I believe in God too. You know, I got, I got this kind of, you know, man upstairs thing. You ever hear, I, that drives me up. Don't tell me man upstairs. I know, you know, no, I know the man upstairs and he's kind of looking down on me and, you know, he helps me out every once in a while, man. I know the man upstairs. He's, he's kind of cool, you know, kind of thing. Stop him right there. You don't understand what I'm talking about when I say God. Tell him, I don't just believe in some kind of little man upstairs that's looking down and helping a little bit. I'm talking about a God that left heaven and came to earth because I was lost and helpless and hopeless in sin. And he died on a cross to pay my debt and to set me free. And I now actually have a personal relationship with him. Don't undersell your God when you go out and engage culture. Don't let people assume that their anemic view of God is the same as the God of the Bible. When, when we speak to people about God and we're done here, remember this story of Paul standing up there and what he's actually doing. Not just what, what he's saying. Listen to what he's actually doing. When we go out, and we tell somebody about our God, give them a sense of the vastness, of the power, of the majesty, of the true and living God. Let's pray. Lord, instill into our hearts the majesty of who you are. Instill into our hearts how vast and amazing you are. Lord, don't ever let us speak of you in common terms. Don't ever let us speak to people of you without a sense in our heart that you're the creator of every single thing. 
But not only are you the creator of everything, the sustainer of everything, and bigger than everything, you're also a God that loves us so personally that you are willing to come and die for each one of us. And not only to die for our sin, but then take us into a personal relationship with you. When we speak of our God, may we speak of that God, the God of the Bible. Lord, we ask as we go into a time of worship now that you overwhelm us with the truth of who you are. That when we talk to people, we wouldn't be able to speak in lesser, common, turned down terms we would have to speak to them on volume 10 when it comes to who our God is and how great you are. We praise you now in Jesus' name.